Juicy podcast. My name is Liz Elam and I am the founder of Juicy. And Juicy is a company that puts on online and in-person events. You can also join the Juicy community and be connected 24-7. And you can find our podcast on juicygcuc.co. Also this October on Tuesdays, we'll be holding a Juicy Mastermind series, which is free thanks to our sponsor, Census. And you can sign up for that, guess where, on Juicy.co. So without further ado, let's get straight to the story. So please welcome my guest, Reeves Weideman. And he is a writer with New York Magazine, but he also recently wrote a book that a lot of people in our industry are excited about reading. I know I am. I haven't had the pleasure of reading it yet, but I know I've got a copy on the way. And Reeves, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and what drove you to write a book? Sure. And thanks for having me. It's really good to be here. So as you mentioned, I'm a a reporter for New York Magazine, where I've, I've been for more or less the the last half decade. And my career's sort of gone all over the place. I kind of started out as a sports writer early on and have transitioned over the years to cover all kinds of things. And, And more recently in the last few years, it's been largely writing about startups and the startup boom in Silicon Valley and elsewhere. And that's involved covering companies like Uber and Vice Media and and many others. And last year, we decided to do a feature story on WeWork. And this was kind of it early 2019, when the company was was kind of still flying high and, and had a $47 billion valuation. When I first met Adam Newman, the, the, it was still not public that they were going to be going public or, or attempting to do so. And so I, I started reporting on the company and, and we were honestly interested in it uh, largely because the New York Magazine headquarters in, in New York City, uh, we suddenly found ourselves surrounded by half a dozen WeWorks that seemed to have popped up overnight. So we, we just want, kind of wanted to understand how this company had grown so quickly. Clearly, it was onto something and you know, as I as I dug into it, it was clear that the company was sort of even stranger and more more interesting than we thought. A lot of that was obviously wrapped up in in Adam Newman himself, both in in good ways and and some other ways that that would sort of reveal themselves later. And and after that story came out, we can obviously get into sort of everything that that happened to the company. But but once um once the the IPO cratered in the fall, I I decided sort of for the first time I'd I'd had plenty of other opportunities or thoughts of, of writing a book. But this was the first time where I felt like there was a real story that was kind of encapsulated that, you know, I, I was not only positioned to sort of tell the inside story of what happened, but but also take a kind of broader look at kind of the last decade of, of startup culture that that WeWork both both fed and and kind of em- embraced in a, in a number of ways. Awesome. Awesome. So the title of the book is Billion Dollar Loser. Pretty salacious title there, Reeves. Um, tell me a little bit about how that came up. Sure. We went through a lot of different titles. I was initially partial to the title of my first article for New York Magazine, which again came out before the IPO uh, debacle, which was was the I and we. And the reason we had titled it then was that we realized it, it was impossible to sort of separate anything about the company from from Adam. And and again, that goes for. Uh, Sort of all the reasons the company was successful, and then and then a lot of the sort of problems that emerged. <laughs> my my editors appreciated the title, but but wanted to go in a different direction. And I I think what what we liked about this this title, you know, there's there's a couple layers of meaning. We work in. 
2019 lost roughly $2 billion. So it was literally a company that that lost all this money. And then last fall, when when Adam left the company, he, at least in time, on, on paper, left with roughly a billion dollars, despite the fact that the IPO itself had failed. That that payout is is now sort of up in the air uh, a little bit, and we'll kind of see what happened. But but I think it sort of you know captured a couple of things about this this company, which just was how big the numbers got, and and sort of asking the question of what it was all for was 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 it was this just kind of uh, about getting rich and and it doesn't matter it didn't totally matter to anyone what what the success of the company was or or not. So it seemed to get to the heart of the kind of question that we wanted to answer. Awesome, thanks for that. And did you have an opportunity? Opportunity to interview Adam for the book. Um, I met Adam last April, in April of 2019, and and again, this was uh, a few days before he left for an around the world 40th birthday celebration. About two weeks before WeWork announced um, its IPO, and uh, you know, back then he was telling me, you know, that WeWork was on the same trajectory as Amazon. In fact, he said we're we are on the same trajectory, but our our growth is faster. And you know, I I, I at one point made a joke that I, I certainly wish that I had WeWork stock at that point. And, and he told me there was still plenty of upside. Um, so this was still Adam kind of flying high. Um, since he left the company, he's decided to stay quiet. We've He didn't want to speak on the record. We've, we obviously were in touch with sort of his, his representatives and gave him every opportunity to to talk about this, but I think for a variety of reasons, he's he's decided to stay quiet recently. Yeah, yeah. Well, when I met Adam in 2012, he was just unbelievably dynamic, you know, talking about changing the world. And I know that just continued and if anything, multiplied year by year. What, what surprised you most when people would talk about Adam? Good question. The thing that surprised me the most is how variable the opinions of him were. Mm. Some people said he's a genius, that he's one of the smartest, savviest businessmen they've they've ever met. His skills are different than a Steve Jobs or Bill Gates or or a Jeff Bezos, but the skills are real. The skills are he knew how to get into a room and and pitch. And you know, there's one way of looking at that as as he's some kind of, you know, sleight of hand artist. There's another way of saying, you know, that's that's a lot of what business is. It's it's mm-hmm. getting into a room and convincing people to to buy into your vision. And and a lot of people did and a lot of people wanted to. So so, you know, I heard plenty of stories like the ones that, that came out of partying and, and sort of bombast. But, but I think what was most interesting to me, and this came from low-level WeWork employees, and, and it came from some of the most senior people at the company and, and investors, was, was how much, you know, they recognized that with all of the craziness there that there was something real that that Adam Adam was good at. And I think in in some ways that's that's been lost a little bit and because of what happened. And I, I, I think I think the only way to really look at the story is to both sort of try to understand what worked and, and why it worked and then also, you know, kind of why why things fell apart. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it was, it was it was interesting in that you know I'd love to hear more about because sort of your your experience with him because I think uh, you know it, it, it's clear to me that the same skills that that he had later on were there early in in kind of the days when he he wasn't WeWork wasn't as big as it was and and 
but he still had that kind of energy and, and charisma to him, even when, when the company was small and it, it wasn't, it was far from clear it was going to work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in 2012, he was talking about changing the entire world. He <laughs> was talking about how, you know, he had the power to do that. And yeah, his, just his stature and his charisma is just undeniable. And, you know, he, he's, he is smart. He's also Mm -hmm. cunning and baffling and powerful. Um, He is just, he's a very interesting human. And I mean, I've got mad respect for what he did because I'm a big, don't tell me what you're going to do. Show me. He did it. Mm -hmm. Like it or not, Mm -hmm. he did it. Um, Mm -hmm. So where do you think, where do you think it all went so horribly wrong? Was it having your wife write the paperwork for the IPO? (laughs) I I think, uh, I, I think that is um, maybe a symptom of a of a of a broader disease that mm. that plagued the company, and and certainly you know we we spend a, a very big chunk of the book going in into detail of of all the little things that that went wrong over the the span of that summer as we were tried to go public, and and yeah, in, involving. Rebecca Newman, and and it's it's not so much to to say that her involvement is what what sent it off the rails, but specifically what her involvement was was making the IPO look good mm-hmm. and selecting pictures to to tell the WeWork story as as she kind of told people, and and that was a lot of what what WeWork did over the years was was tell a really good story, and and I think you know you and 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 a lot of people listening to this are obviously entrepreneurs and that's a huge part of of a successful business is is telling a story and it's not sort of inherently it's not a, a, something that's inherently bad or or sinister but the story has to obviously connect with with the reality I think and and I think one one issue is that that we work you know as as you say Adam talked often about changing the world and there were ways in which you know a WeWork office was was a great place to be um, for a lot of people, mm-hmm. just as you know many other other co working spaces are. There, it's people people loved these these spaces. There were all kinds of problems, of course, and I think an issue that gets and and this is something I've seen repeated again in these kind of other startups that that came up over the past decade is it, connecting what you say you do with what you actually do. And and what WeWork was good at was pumping out office space, you know, relatively good office space, filling it, you know, building community to a certain degree, although that obviously became much more difficult the bigger the company got. But I think a lot of a lot of the problems resulted from, you know, sort of some fateful decisions a year, two years before the IPO of, of trying to grow this company so fast, faster, as they bragged about, faster than any physical gr- expansion of, of kind of any company ever. It's something that people say a lot about WeWork and, and frankly may be true and expanding into all these other businesses, you know, the apartments, the school, the, the wave pools, the gyms. There was, Adam did have this goal of, of trying to change the world in kind of all of these ways. And, you know, that ambition was inspiring to a lot of people, but I think at, at a certain point, it, it became, you know, a little bit delusional to kind of think that that this company was, was capable of doing it, at least at, at this point, it's in, in its development. Yeah. And how much of that was fueled by SoftBank and SoftBank 
you know, giving them the money and then pushing them to spend it. Mm-hmm. You know, one one, um, one employee who was, who was pretty heavily involved in that sort of negotiation and, and the financing sort of, uh, of of the company over the years, well before SoftBank sort of put it to me this way in a, in a very colorful way, was, was at that point when SoftBank showed up in 2016, we were thought they were going to have to go public. They didn't, they didn't think there was any more money for them to go get. They they'd kind of tapped everything out and, and they were kind of preparing for that. And the way he put it was, you know, that the one guy in the world with the one drug that the company wanted showed up at the door. And that was Masayoshi San, who had the Vision Fund, which we, he was in the midst of building at that time, this $100 billion fund funded in large part by Saudi Arabia and, and a number of other entities. And no one else had the kind of money to, to fuel this expansion. You know, the initial investment from, from SoftBank was $4 billion, which was sort of unheard of at the time. And so to make a long story short, SoftBank's involvement was, if not the most crucial pivot point for this company, certainly it's 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 among the, the top two or three, and it, it changed everything. And, and I think you know people often talk about Massa's relationship to to Adam and how they were sort of kindred spirits in in the ambition that they had and and thinking big and and wanting to change the world. Both of them talk about this talked about this constantly, and so I I, I think that Adam and and we were. Were, were primed to kind of grow and and wanted to do that and what softbank did is is enabled that they they came in and said here's the money grow as fast as you can do everything you can now did they say go start an elementary school i i don't think that was part of the pitch but certainly all of the expansion wouldn't have happened uh at the pace that it did without softbank and i think there's a real kind of interesting hypothetical game to play of what would have where would we work be if if softbank never showed up and uh, you know, hindsight is obviously is obviously much easier to to talk about, but I think I think everyone would admit it'd be in a much better place. Absolutely, I totally agree with that. And I and you know I I just wonder if the Vision Fund hasn't done the exact opposite of what it intended to do for WeWork and other companies. Yeah, it's it's played out in all kinds of businesses. I mean, we're seeing this this now in all, all kinds of industries. I mean, food delivery is is sort of a big one now, obviously in in the pandemic. And and you know, SoftBank's not the only one, but but the, more than many others, they've poured m- money into the ride hailing food delivery business. On, on this notion that you're gonna gonna dominate an industry that that frankly <laughs> may not be possible to dominate and it's sort of a, a question of why you would aspire to that and and so I think uh, th- this is again a pattern that that's played out not just in the co-working real estate world but but softbank's money really, warped the economies of these of these individual businesses and and I'm sure a lot of the people listening to this had to deal with that once softbank's money came into WeWork WeWork started offering all these discounts that that made it difficult I think for both for WeWork and I'm sure for many other well, operators yeah. I know from I mean people to even figure out how much people would actually pay for this thing. It, uh, yeah, I think it. I think it really affected our economy. And as a small business owner that tried to compete with WeWork, you know, I was opening a space. WeWork was opening a space just a couple miles away, and they were giving one year of free rent. You cannot yeah. compete with that. So who they hurt 
a lot of times ends up being small business. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, and I, I think that's a really big concern in general. And, and we've seen how much small businesses are, are, are especially struggling now in, in all kinds of industries. And, and you know, as I, as I kind of thought about this, uh, this book, and one reason I, I wanted to write it was not just to tell just the ins and outs of this kind of fascinating and, and strange story, but, but I, I think there are big questions that we didn't, we still haven't quite grappled with about what kind of economy we, we want to build. And, you know, so many of these companies, because they, you know, we work could only live up to what SoftBank wanted if it became a giant globe spanning $50 billion, as, as Masa said, a trillion dollar company. That's the only way it makes sense. And so I, I think it's a real open question. And, and I, I think I know what the answer is, and I, I think it's been revealed in a lot of ways that the companies that grow very big, very quickly are not necessarily good for our society or or our economy, frankly. Right, right. And you know, I really question whether or not we work can survive without Adams at the top. So do you think Adam will be able to reinvent himself? Or do you think he uh, wants to? Um well, uh, you know, what does reinvention mean? I I, I think uh, I think Adam will be back. Will he rise um, again? You know. He will rise again would be my prediction. And I think part of that is, you know, whether or not he, he gets his billion dollars, he's set for life. He's got a, got a lot of money. And unless something turns wildly wrong, he's fine. But I don't think he's, as, as much as he enjoys surfing, I don't think he is the type of person who is going to be content doing that for you know entering early retirement in his, in his early 40s. And, and to go back to what we were talking about, his his skill set is unique. There are not many people who can inspire people the way he can. And I think he's clearly, you know, there there's it's going to be a tricky thing given that that he did become sort of a laughing stock in in the in the business mm-hmm. world and in the press and in some cases deservedly so, but you know, we've we've proven as a society time and again that that we um, we have a short memory, and and mm-hmm. you know, I I would I would expect that there will be a point when when Adam, whenever he wants to reemerge, whatever he wants to do, there's going to be money, there's going to be people who are willing to back him because they're going to believe that he can he can pull this trick again, that that he can inspire and and convince people to follow sort of whatever his his next move might be. Yeah, I think it's super interesting. You know, on a call we were on, but with some co-working folks, somebody mentioned religion, which he would mm-hmm. be fantastic at. And you know, my thought is always he should go into politics mm-hmm. or he will yeah. go into politics. Yeah. But you know, I think I, I take... I, I I don't believe he's set for life. He's set for life monetarily. And right. you know, that money is not gonna buy you satisfaction. That money is not right. gonna buy you happiness and self-worth. And I think that I think it's gonna be really hard for that ego to take what's happened. And so I, I don't know if if he will reemerge. I really don't. Interesting. So you you mean he he won't be able to successfully kind of reinvent himself, or what, what do you mean by that? Well, I think that I think his ego took such a hit, and his reputation mm-hmm. is questionable. So I think mm-hmm. that it's going to have to be in a different industry. I don't think it'll be mm-hmm. in the business world. I think it'll be mm-hmm. in politics or religion or somewhere else. Yeah, and not necessarily in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think that's right. I think, you know, 
it returning to Israel could be could be a way for him to accomplish any number of those things. And I think, you know, to your point, yes, he may be set monetarily, but he he's not set in terms of what's going to give him satisfaction. And I think a big question people would always ask me is, is you know, was the rhetoric the company talked about, like, was it all BS? Like, did he believe it? Was it just a, or was it just kind of a sales pitch? And I think he did. I think, I think he, in, in some way, he, when he said, we're changing the world, I think he both knew that he was being bombastic on purpose, but he also felt that that's what he wanted to do, that he wanted to build a company that changed things and, and, and made a difference and made an impact. And I, and I think that he's going to want to continue to do that in in whatever he sort of does next. No, and I I 100% agree with you. I think he absolutely knew it was borderline insane, but I also Hmm. think he believed if anyone could do it, he could. And that's all it takes, you know, good for him. You know, the co-working industry is forever grateful for him calling it co-working. Whether it was or not, who cares? It it put the name co-working into mainstream. So let's let's move into present day and where we work is at now and where they're going and what we can learn from this. So that being said, you know, I was actually a little bit surprised at the lack of reaction to the crisis that WeWork had. I don't think they handled it really well. I think they could have handled it a lot better. I think there's a question of whether they can survive in a meaningful way post-Adam. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I am starting to hear and see a little bit, you know, when a lot of times when people talk about Regis, it's because it's almost like a dirty word, like, I got to get out of the Regis. And now it's WeWork's becoming similar to that. And their layouts were very cookie cutter as far as the glass offices, which were jam-packed. Like there is no physical distancing in there. So how can they survive post-COVID? Are they too big to fail? I know I've asked seven questions, but I know you can handle it. it well, certainly Adam's goal and and it was explicit was to become too big to fail. And I think, you know, I think the answer probably is that that not quite. Um, they didn't they didn't quite be, become that, but they did become big. And, you know, size is a double-edged sword, I think, is especially now. You know, the the new CEO comes from the real estate world. You know, he, and, and that's, the company has basically acknowledged that that this is what we do. We do we do real estate. We're a commercial real estate company, which is is very different than being in the business of, of elevating the world's consciousness, which was the stated mission statement going into the IPO. In in terms of how they're going to survive, you know, the company was obviously moving away from the idea of co working and and catering to small entrepreneurs uh, the way that a lot of you know independent co working companies do. I, I think you're going to see them move even more towards that or away from that. Excuse me. Um, Towards trying to cater to these larger companies, it clearly, I, I think no one knows what the commercial office space world is going to look like in the next six months or a year. And and I think the hope that they have is that these you know large companies that may not want as many giant office spaces of their own as as they have will think of WeWork as as a place that that can be a place for their employees to go if and when they want office space. And so uh, you know they they are trying to think creatively. They've t- I I think they've made some deals with schools to I, I know in New York City to to host kind of classrooms. So they're trying to figure out different ways to to use their spaces. I think that what what's going to make it a problem is is you know 
if, if and I, I think this is where potentially smaller operators are in a, in a better position, if you've got a couple spaces, you can think pretty creatively about, about how to use those. And I think being flexible and being creative is, is going to be crucial in the months ahead. For WeWork, they have to be creative in a cookie cutter way because of how big the company has gone. So I, I think that's that's going to be the challenge. And, and I do think it's it's going to be very tricky. You know, they have money. They still, you know, against all the odds, they still have money to kind of float themselves for a little while. But what what emerges on the other side, I think, is, is the big question facing them. Well, and I think they'll use the opportunity to shed a lot of bad deals and sign some really attractive new deals. Because that's what I'd be doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I, I haven't heard too much about them signing new deals. Uh, you know, you, you hear a lot of They've they've backed out of leases here and there. You know, interestingly, one of the spaces they've they, I think I I don't know this for sure, but I I believe that the only actual physical WeWork that has been built and operated before the IPO, Adam would brag to investors, potential investors, we've never shut down a location. Mm-hmm. And we talk in the book at, at one of these meetings, this investor sort of raised their hand and was like, wait, you know, I I get why you're bragging about that, but also, are you telling me every you picked the perfect location? It, the right size in the right place and it's operating smoothly every time like that almost tells to me that that you haven't been disciplined in in doing this so the, you know they were very prideful about having never closed a location this year they announced the one that they closed was the original the very first mm-hmm. we work in soho which is a smaller space and in the scheme of the business that, that they're now operating no longer makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, I think post-COVID, we'll see a lot of corporations coming back first, but they're primarily coming back to the suburbs and rural locations mm-hmm. because they want to be closer to home. So I think their plan of strategically just being an urban dent might backfire a little as well. It'll be it'll be interesting to watch, you know, but yeah, they've, they've instead of a dynamic pitch man, they've got real estate fixers in there. So we'll see. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. It's a more it's a more boring way of doing business. It's, you know, it's it's kind of what people suggested they should do. And so I, it is going to be interesting to to find out kind of how much of the business depended mm-hmm. on on that kind of forward momentum and and if there is kind of a, a a real just kind of stable frankly kind of boring business to be operated. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So in the future, I think we're going to see a, a huge actually I don't think. I know we're going to see a, this huge focus on health and wellness and getting away from sick buildings and really paying attention to our health. And I'm and that the reason I mention that is I'm so ready for the hustle culture to die. Because to mm-hmm. me that just that's just that that pressure, that churn, that kind of not taking care of yourself is, I think, so toxic for the human beings behind it. Do you think mm-hmm. that that we're emerging out of that? You know, I, I mean, for for this book, I I interviewed, I, th- I think, something in the neighborhood of two hundred WeWork employees, and and a lot of them, especially the younger people, told kind of different versions of the same story, which is that they got to WeWork, they loved it. They worked 60, 70, 80 hours a week. They stayed late on a Tuesday night working and drinking with their colleagues who were their friends. And and this company was their life. A lot of what Adam preached encouraged that, encouraged thinking of, of a company as a family. And all of them, not all of them, but but a lot of the people I talked to, at, at some point along the way, some of them stuck 
it out through the IPO. Some of them bailed before then. They just realized that they were exhausted. And one one person I talked to, and they were exhausted and that their exhaustion wasn't worth it. And I, I talked to one employee who, who was there for a long time uh, in the neighborhood of five years and stayed through the IPO. And he had told me, you know, Facebook has this kind of longstanding ethos of, of move fast and, and break things, I think is, is sort of roughly what it is. And the, the idea being that you want to constantly be changing and, mm-hmm. and changing what you're doing and, and breaking norms. And he, you know, he sort of agreed with that as an ethos for one of these kinds of companies. But then he said, you can't move fast and break people. And he felt that that is what happened to a lot of employees that, mm-hmm. that, and it wasn't, it wasn't in, in some ways, it wasn't a conscious thing of, of grinding people to the bone. And in other ways, I think, frankly, it was that, mm-hmm. that we were, did encourage, encourage that, but it was certainly a, a consequence. And to your question of whether that will change. I've been an ambitious person in my 20s before, and I know all of the reasons that people like that want to work hard and and think, find it fulfilling and think that it's satisfying. And so we'll, and, and I do think that, that the past decade, two decades, really encourage that kind of behavior. I don't totally know how we change it. I think a lot of it is is changing the incentives around encouraging people to do this. And, and I think it's it's going to be difficult. But but I do think you have these moments, you had the recession in, in 2008, and you have everything happening now, where I think people are just kind of reassessing their lives and priorities. Mm-hmm. So if anything's going to do it, it's it's this break exactly, yeah. that we're, we're going through. Right, right. Well, as we wrap up, Reeves, what, what, was, what were some of the things that we can learn from this that everybody kind of knows? And what are some of the surprising things we can learn from this example? Sure. Well, I talked about this a little bit, but I, I thought one of the more interesting takeaways from someone at the end of this was an investor in Silicon Valley who started talking as he's interviewing, he was sort of interviewing potential founders of companies to invest in in, in in the fall as everything was falling apart for WeWork. And he would ask them about WeWork and he would ask them about Adam and, and ask them about their thoughts on it. And the answer he was looking for was not for them to say, you know, man, Adam was crazy and WeWork, what a what a sham. He wanted them to acknowledge some of the problems and then also acknowledge what was what was right. And I think I think in general, if if as and especially as I just kind of think of the topics we've talked up is is I think thinking really hard about growth is is going to be a crucial thing, and and whether uh, a company is is growing for the sake of growing or growing because it actually makes sense to do so, and and I think you can look at a lot of ways that that different companies have gone off the rails in the past few years. Uh, WeWork being an obvious example. Facebook ten years ago, five years ago, Facebook was not a crucial cog in our democracy. That company has grown beyond what any anyone who worked there intended it to be. They encouraged it to do so, and and you you eventually get to a point where you have to deal with the consequences, and you you might not be equipped to do so. And so, you know, and. I think as I think about the path ahead, you know, WeWork was founded after the financial crisis in the heels of it. When real estate was down in New York City, you know, Adam and his partner, Miguel, saw an opportunity mm-hmm. and, and they, they went for it. And, and at whatever point, you know, it still feels like we're in, in kind of the downswing, unfortunately, of, mm-hmm. of this, this break and, and unclear when it's coming out. But there's, there's going to be a new 
there's going to be people who figure out how to take advantage of this and and build something new. And and there's ways in which that can be great. But I if if I have a hope for for that group of people, it's that they sort of build with intention, I guess, and mm-hmm. not just build for the sake of building. Right, right. You know, and I think another lesson is is, you know, when that when that opportunity comes, it seems like it's the best opportunity in the world and somebody's handing you this insane amount of money. It's not always the best thing. Yeah. Right. You right. know? Yeah. You've got to learn to say no. And I do think, I thought a lot about that. I think it's hard to say no. So, you know, could any of us say no to $4 billion? Um, <laughs> I think even some of the people who are, are, you know, I didn't run into too many people who said, you know, Adam really should have said no to SoftBank. I, I think there's a lot of people who wish it hadn't happened, but it's still hard for even people who, who are sober-minded to, to say no to someone coming to you and saying, go take over the world. I believe in you. Here's what you need to to be able to do that. So. Well, I think that's why it was so telling when Adam was talking about hiring me and buying my business and I said no. Mm-hmm. He said, well, if you don't join me, I'll crush you. Yeah. And you're not the only person who he threatened to crush mm-hmm. if, if they didn't, didn't join you. So, but I, I think that's that's very telling, especially when you know that happened early on. Yeah. That was not that was not when he was a, a, a titan. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, it's also, you know, we have very different ideas of what success is. I'm happy and that's that's worth it for me. All the money in the world isn't going to make me happy. I'd like it. Let me be clear, yeah. but I know it won't make me happy. Yeah, I and I, you know I've talked to a lot of co-working flex space operators, mm-hmm. and I think that's been pretty. You know, I, I was often wondering as I was getting into it. You know, is there some jealousy? You know, there's people who started their business before Adam. Yeah, there was. You know, before we work, the the company he started was Green Desk, which yeah, was yeah. sort of environmentally focused in Brooklyn. A mile away, there was a space called Green Spaces. There, Green Space that was. Mm-hmm. you know, operating the same thing. Mm-hmm. And Adam had the ambition to build this thing. And and so, you know, I was curious, are people jealous? Like, do they wish they could be Adam? And, you know, I think there's a small percentage of some people who, who wish they were, but I, by and large, I think to your point earlier, people were grateful um, mm-hmm. to the sort of path that we were led. And then having one space, two spaces, five spaces, 10 spaces, that's a, you can build a good life and you can build a very fulfilling life. And I think that's something that's come through to, to a lot of the people I've talked to. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I just think it's really important to not burn out the humans. And if your family's toxic, leave it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think that Gen Z has some good wake up calls coming for us. And I'm super hopeful for the future. And, you know, I do wish Adam the best and I don't want WeWork to fail, but I think it's a good wake up call to the industry and to the world about exactly what you said earlier. What economy do we want to build? What things do we want to value? Because I think there was a real churn and burn and let's just make money and open spaces. And I think they lost their way on the let's create a better place to work. Yeah, I, I I think that's right, and I think if you know if there's a lesson, it's it's focusing on building that thing, building the thing that that really matters, rather than just building the thing. Yeah, to do so exactly. Well, any final thoughts, Reeves, before we wrap it up today? No, I, I'm just so grateful that that you took the time to talk to me, and I think you know I I, I wanted to talk to you because I think the people in this world are, are the people I I want to hear from the most because I didn't know who Adam Newman was in 2012, and and you and others um, sort of watched this rise and, and fall um, over the years. So the book's still still a, a little bit from, from being released. And 
and and once it is i'm i'm just really eager and anxious to hear from people in this community their thoughts on it as as people who watched this along the way thank you so much reeves again the book is billion dollar loser and when will it be released october 20th it's gonna be exciting i can't wait i know i've got a copy on the way and i can't wait to just devour it yeah Great. Well, and I'll, I'll, I'll look forward to it. Thanks again, for Reeves, for your insight and for sharing and for telling the story. I love storytelling, and I can already tell this is going to be a good one. So I think there will be some, in addition to all the big picture things we've talked about, there's also an arm wrestling match between Adam Newman and Jared Kushner that, that is in the book. So I think hopefully, in, in addition to some lessons, there's, there's a lot of fun to be had in, in this book as well. So. Awesome. Awesome. Well, looking forward to it. Thank you again for joining us for a juicy podcast. Make sure you stay in touch with us by signing up for our newsletter, which you can also find on gcuc.co. And don't forget to join us for the mastermind sessions in October. They're free and you can next level your learning. So thanks again for joining us for the juicy podcast and we'll see you soon.